welcome to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Hey, DevCom community. Today's episode is all about VR. With Alex Silken, co-founder and CTO at Servios, I have a guest who's been working in the field of virtual reality for about a decade and has certainly helped push the boundaries of what's possible, thereby defining VR experiences that we see today. Most of you will probably remember your first VR moment, but the challenge often lies in bringing people back after the first wow factor. So Alex and I will take a look at the evolution of VR hardware and what game designers learned in recent years, so you can take away some valuable insights for your own VR project or to simply feed your curiosity. Welcome to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Thank you very much for joining me today, Alex. Why don't you introduce? In, well, sorry. Thank you very much for joining me today, Alex. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a bit of your personal story in VR to begin with? Um, thanks, Lars, for having me. Uh, really, really excited to chat uh, about VR. Excited to be on this podcast. Um, yeah, so I started working in virtual reality about uh, 2012 um, at USC. And uh, we uh, developed this uh, project at school called the Project Holodeck. Um, the idea was to create something akin to what the Vive became uh, a few years later down the line, essentially create a virtual reality uh, uh, room scale, as they call it now, uh, experience where you could walk around, uh, your head was tracked, you, could, you had an HMD and your hands were also tracked. Um, and uh, we developed a couple of games on that. And then after, uh, as, uh, after this, the school project finished, um, in 2013, we started a company called Servius. And uh, we continued working on uh, VR hardware and software for a bit. Um, there was no real commercial VR available, uh, particularly the type of uh, VR hardware that we wanted, that we needed to create the experiences that we wanted, uh, motion controllers uh, being one of the main um, kind of focuses for us from the beginning. So um, eventually, you, you know, as the story goes, the HTC Vive came out on the market, the Oculus Touch controllers came out on the market, and the PlayStation VR. And we've um, ported what we've been working on uh, to these platforms, which became known as Raw Data. Uh, so Raw Data came out first uh, on HTC Vive, I believe, in 2015. Uh, and it was an early access, and uh, we were... Uh, extremely excited to see that it was well received um you know the first time we showed it at vrla it already got a lot of positive attention um and uh we decided to keep working on it as an early access and continue throwing features at it uh that was a really great learning experience of uh both the prawns and cons of uh early access um you know we we got the opportunity to really grow the scope of the game from what we initially planned it to be uh, which also grew the, the the budget and time that it took to finish it, uh, and we kind of threw. We ended up throwing things like uh, cooperative multiplayer. Uh, well, we had cooperative multiplayer from the start, but we ended up adding uh, competitive multiplayer um, and added way more maps with way more variety, um, and um, uh, managed to finally wrap that up and uh, started working on a few other games. Um, Spring Vector being our second game, uh, we then released uh, Creed Rise to Glory, uh, which is a boxing game based on the Creed IP. Um, we also released Electronauts, which is a music game. Um, and uh, 
slowly we started doing more, more and more IP licenses. Uh, I think Battle Wake was uh, our last original IP, but since then we've released a uh, Westworld game and also a Walking Dead game. And uh, last but not least, uh, recently we started getting our uh, uh, feet wet in the non-VR market as well. Uh, so sort of uh, diversifying and uh, trying to hit a bigger audience and uh, essentially chasing this concept we're calling uh, cross-reality. Um, I think a few other studios are also starting to use that term, but it's sort of like cross-play, but for VR. And last year we released some titles that were um, on that were non-VR games essentially, or had non-VR modes. Uh, the primary one being a non-VR port of our boxing game, uh, uh, Creed boxing game. And this game is called uh, Big Grumble Boxing Creed Champions. And that came out, that was our first game on the Nintendo Switch and Xbox platforms, uh, uh, as well as, you know, still working on the PlayStation and PCs team platform. Cool. So let, let's go back for a, for a moment for uh, like to when it all started. I mean, you said like, uh, you know, at at USC, um, you started working on your own kind of prototypes. Uh, that's when VR development began for you. How did you actually build those first, um, you know, dev kits, if I may call them like that? You know, where did you, what kind of hardware did you use to to make this possible? Because like you said, I mean, there were no uh, commercial sets available. So how did you build this up? Right. So. Um... In the early days, there were no, there was no commercial VR hardware. There was no Oculus Rift. The um, Oculus Rift DK1 Kickstarter hasn't even launched yet. So the goal for Project Holodeck uh, and the idea for Project Holodeck was that uh, we realized that there was a lot of off-the-shelf hardware available to make, or at least to hack together and prototype the type of VR experiences that we, we envisioned uh, were possible. Um, yeah, essentially, you know, we needed something to track the head and the hands, and we needed something to display, uh, you know, a video feed to that, to your, to your, to your eyes. Um, and around that time, this is the reason why Oculus, I think DK one also kind of came into being is the, the fact that, uh, you know, technology prices and, uh, specs hit the point where you could finally have an affordable and quality experience. Uh, primarily this was driven by mobile phones. So, you know, right. mobile phones are very mainstream. So, uh, the prices for LCD screens and, uh, you know, why I track, uh, IMU trackers for detecting essentially your uh, head rotation, uh, became, uh, quality enough. And also the price, uh, fell to a level where it was, possible to create a good experience so did you use mobile phones uh, for 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 the you know as, as head tracking sensor and did you use i don't know playstation move controllers i think they were out uh, by that time for for like the hand tracking or what did you actually use to, to make this work right so the original pitch for the project uh, actually was going to use a mobile phone um, essentially strapped to your face with uh, some special housing and lenses and that would track your head and also display a fee, uh, you know, the game to, to, to you. But also we were planning to use uh, actually four connects. So originally when it was pitched, mm -hmm. the idea was that if you surround yourself with four connects, you would have 360 uh, full body skeletal tracking. So that, uh, that idea uh, kind of quickly shifted over the summer, um, partially because the Oculus DK1 uh, was announced but also 
we started looking at these controllers called the Razer Hydra. And these were controllers that were manufactured by Razer, uh, as the brand implies, but they were actually designed by a company called Six Sense. And this is a magnetically tracked uh, system. Essentially, there's a there's a ball like a, a coil that emanates a magnetic field, and the controllers are uh, attached to this uh, base station, and they're able to uh, tell you um, uh, within that limited range, pretty uh, with relatively high degree of uh, accuracy and la uh, low latency, uh, what the position and rotation of the controller is. So essentially a six DOF controller around this uh, limited space. So uh, I bought a pair of those and started messing around with them. Um, there was no Unity integration back then. So I um, I, I made a little integration, uh, you know, because it's a C++ uh, API into Unity and just quickly threw in some boxes that so, and hands so you could move around your hands and touch boxes. And I just immediately fell in love with just that, uh, you know, just that simple experiment. I immediately, I think uh, something in me knew that that's what I wanted to work on. Uh, I've never been so excited to work on something uh, like that before, motion controls. And um, so alongside that, uh, because the DK1 was announced, we um, and we wanted to use the controllers, uh, we circled back on the idea of using mobile phones because they were rather limited. So uh, we needed some kind of uh, HMD. And, and luckily, um, two of the... Um, Two of the people who uh, pitched uh, the project, uh, Nathan Berber and James Iliff, they actually worked at the uh, Mixed Reality Lab, which is a part of USC, which is where um, Palmer Lucky actually used to work. And this is at this lab, they um, they created this prototype HMD called the Socket HMD, which it was basically kind of the precursor to the Oculus DK1. It was just, just a much more crude um, uh, prototype, which is essentially just a 3D printed uh, uh, little box that housed a uh, mobile phone screen and or you know it was it was it was a there was no mobile phone there it was just a screen that uh, was able to be attached by HMD uh, HDMI to a computer so the idea was we knew we could strap this screen to your face uh, with the lenses essentially akin to what the Oculus DK1 was which is one screen with two lenses and um render that out into a, uh, you know, a unity scene. And, uh, you know, again, back then there was no API, there was no SDK for this. So, um, the trick was we had two unity cameras that were rendering onto, uh, two render targets that were then plastered onto two, uh, two meshes and the meshes were deformed, um, to, uh, take into account the, uh, um, the warping of the lenses. And then those meshes were then, uh, put in front of two other cameras that were then rendering out onto the, you know, the, the, the screen onto the actual, uh, scene, uh, scene texture. Uh, so it's sort of like a hack, but it worked really well, uh, back when, you know, we didn't have, uh, SDKs and we, we didn't, uh, have any like fancy, um, um, shaders, um, to do the warping. So 
um, yeah, a lot of a lot of pioneering work <laughs> that you had to do. I mean, it sounds sounds super fascinating. Obviously, like I, I always find it, um, you know, crazy how how you how creative you have to be if you need to build the first prototype of something. I mean, with with none of the dev kits available, you know, then uh, you had to get creative, and uh, it really shows in that regard. You also mentioned that uh, I think when we talked a while ago that you were um, developing kind of the first two player experience. So was that at the time, or was that a little bit later? And and what were the additional challenges if you uh, were to make uh, you know, virtual reality work with two people at the same time. Uh, right. So <clears throat> I have to give credit. Uh, you know, this was a very much uh, like communal effort of uh, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different innovators. Um, and, uh, you know, Nathan Berber from the beginning wanted to make a, uh, a multiplayer experience for him. The inspiration was uh, Battlefield. Um, I think he just, you know, grew up and he really loved playing uh, those multiplayer battles, especially for him, the experience of uh, being on a plane with someone else and like someone piloting the plane and another person uh, manning the gun. Uh, for him, that really resonated uh, as, a, I guess, a strong bonding experience in a multiplayer game. So he wanted to recreate that. So the game that we that he pitched uh, that, we, that we worked on was called uh, Wild Skies. It was a uh, essentially a steampunk uh, pirate ship flying adventure. And the idea would be that you're both on this uh, little flying ship, and one person can fly, uh, you know, can can get on the helm and and steer the ship, and the, another person needs to uh, man the cannons. And potentially, there's you know mechanics where both players kind of have to interact. Um, so from the beginning, the goal was to create this as a as a multiplayer experience. Um, and you know, initially we were trying to use four connects from all corners, and we we thought that that would uh, kind of avoid occlusion issues. And also, you know, have that magical moment of looking at the other person in where they are in real space, but actually seeing their avatar, like full body tracked avatar, in them embodying essentially a completely different character. Um, and then when we changed our plan to move to a different uh, kind of hardware stack, um, we still wanted to um, deliver on that. And so we used PlayStation Move uh, cameras, camera to track uh, two PlayStation Move controllers. Uh, the one we each that we strapped to the top of people's head. Essentially, we took a biker helmet and we bolted a whole bunch of things to it. <laughs> and um, that gave you that magical moment of looking at the other person, seeing their avatar, right. and then trying to shake their hand in VR, essentially. Yeah, that, that's what I found so interesting. And in, when I first had like an, a room scale experience in uh, in VR, uh, I did the Void in uh, New York um, a couple of years back, and uh, you know the, the Ghostbusters experience they had there. And it's really cool to see you know the other person or the, their virtual avatar right next to you, and you can touch it, and the, somebody is really there. So that's that's a whole different level of immersion, of of course, compared to you know if this is not the case. <laughs> Right. There's obviously some some danger of bumping into someone else. Uh, so you're kind of relying, <laughs> right. relying on, uh, on relying on tracking, not failing. Uh, that you have to have almost like safety protocols of if one person disappears. Um, yeah, but if it works, it's great. <laughs> you know, I even like I checked it out. Like how you know what's how many inches do I have if I like I had a gun in my hand and like I touched the wall there. So how precise was that? And so on. I was pretty fascinated by how accurate it actually was when I when I tried it out. So um, speaking of uh, cool experiences, I mean, one of the things that um, you often see when you uh, try VR for the first time and there's still, you know, newbies out there that uh, haven't done it uh, yet is, is this wow factor. You know, you put on the, the headset and you have your first VR experience and it's like, wow, this is different. You know, this is really cool. 
But what are your thoughts on how to keep players after that first wow factor? What do you need to do to, you know, bring people back? What is the fascination of VR, uh, you know, after the, the, the initial hype fades? Right. I think it's, uh, it's funny. Guys. I feel like VR has this double-edged sword of um, they ha they, it's very easy for, to wow a first-time user um and just kind of blow their mind away or even you know even if even if they're experienced in vr uh it's very easy to um you know provide them like a cool first time experience uh but as you mentioned uh keeping keeping them uh sustain sustaining their attention is, is kind of difficult the bar in vr to maintain attention uh is just higher um i attribute that to just the higher friction that uh, of of even trying the experience, you know, putting on the headset, uh, you know, it's more, it's a much more active experience. Um, so standing there, uh, you know, wearing some hardware and, you know, often the hardware is not the most comfortable thing. It's kind of heavy and hot. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, there's definitely a lot of, uh, difficulties making sure that your content kind of keeps evolving, uh, and providing new, uh, new discoveries, new mechanics. Uh, we've certainly struggled with that. Um, you know, in raw data, starting somewhere from our first game in raw data, we tried to uh, really create more and more variety through the levels as the game progressed. So we kind of had a core gameplay loop of um, it's it was essentially kind of a, a more advanced tower defense, I, I suppose, where you're defending these um, uh, this 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 data core, um, and uh, you know and. It, Initially, the game starts off very much feeling like a, a wave shooter, but we added more and more mechanics to uh, create variants through the levels. So, um, you know, one level uh, was uh, essentially this laser level where lasers come up and you start having to dodge the lasers while still uh, playing with the regular, you know, the regular kind of gameplay loop of trying to shoot robots and defense, defend the data core. But now at the same time, you have to almost uh, have this kind of Simon says kind of game where you have to like stand in the right place. So you don't get shot by lasers. Um, you know, we had, I think one of the biggest diversions of gameplay was um, we had a level where you would actually take the data core and you would uh, get on a tram and then you would travel to a whole, like a whole other place. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the, techniques from standard games kind of apply where you have to, um, you know, you, you have to keep things familiar for the player, but you, you also have to add, introduce uh, kind of new, uh, new variety uh, every once in a while and, and make sure it's, it's, it's unique. You don't, you know, if you start repeating the same kind of mechanic over and over again, it also loses its novelty. So you have to play that fine balance. Um, you know, something else we learned is, um, um, is uh, just player exhaustion in VR and, and balancing that out. Um, so an issue we had in Spirit Vector, it was a racing game, and um, it, it was hard to maintain players between races because just after one race, you would be completely spent. You would be really tired. And I think in Creed, uh, we managed to strike a nice balance where we had uh, mini games and then we had fights, uh, like the actual uh, boxing matches. And I think that provided nice variety uh, to go back and forth between, you know, a, a fighting ring to some of these other um, potentially less exhausting minigames. Although 
I suppose they were kind of also physically exhausting, but uh, the mini games themselves uh, just were very different uh, in comparison to fighting against a, you know, an AI opponent. And we also kind of introduced a smaller, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, additional mini games. And I think I I was, I, I think I was myself a little surprised with how well the mini games were received. Um, I think that just talks to the power of VR to sometimes turn things that seem mundane into something that's really fun. Um, because the mini games are, you know, essentially you punching, punching bags in different locations or different times or punching dummies or dodging like, uh, uh, punching bags again. Um, but people have had a lot of fun in that. Uh, sometimes I feel like even more than the actual, uh, boxing matches. Um, so I think, I think those types of, uh, games would be, you know, way less interesting in, um, in traditional gaming. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, a lot of that is, uh, experimentation and keeping an open mind to what can can be made into a fun thing in vr was that one of the reasons you also moved into um brands and, and having branded games i mean you talked a bit about uh, you know westworld and the walking dead and is that something that helps in that regard right so increasingly for us uh, uh lately the focus has been uh, licensing uh tv show movie uh etc ip um, and that uh, has many advantages. Um, I would certainly say it has some cons too. It's not you know, a magic bullet, uh, but um, you know, one of the advantages is just uh, kind of instant consumer understanding and awareness of the world of the IP. Um, so you don't have to you know, spend as much time and effort to try to introduce someone to the world or even yourself just, you know, the world is sort of comes in, uh, comes to you as a, uh, as a package, there's, you, you can develop certainly on top of it, but you don't have to do as much of a grunt work, uh, to establish the foundation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also very magical for, uh, the fans of IP to be transported to these worlds. Um, I think that's, what's really exciting about VR. Uh, it makes you, you know, it, it allows you to embody the characters of, uh, you know, some of these heroes and see the world through their eyes. And I think that's a really kind of like a fantasy that uh, a lot of people have about their favorite IP. Um, and, um, you know, so there's kind of instant marketing people immediately from just the name of the game, uh, from the image of your poster immediately know what it is. So it definitely helps, um, gain immediate attention. Um, it's obviously not, uh, you know, it's, it's not again, like a magic bullet. There's, it's not, uh, there's definitely challenges involved with, uh, working with IP licenses. You have to respect the IP. You have to make sure that everything is approved. Um, it, uh, certainly puts limitations on what you can do. Um, you know, there's obviously the IPs have, uh, certain rules about what can and can't go into those IPs. And particularly sometimes in the gaming space. And I think in VR, uh, it becomes challenging uh, with how you can implement some of the more gamified elements. Um, because like, for example, uh, you know, in a, uh, you know, say Westworld, The Walking Dead, uh, there's no like heads up elements, um, <clears throat> which is probably okay since it's a VR game. So we kind of avoid those. Uh, but then you have to still give feedback to the user with some kind of uh, diegetic or non-diegetic UI. So the question is, uh, how do you do that um, effectively that still 
uh, feels authentic to the IP. Um, and this certainly on that on that front, there's just a, a lot of consumer expectations about what the IP is. So that also kind of creates a barrier because you are you you don't have a clean slate. <laughs> so on one hand, the advantage is you don't have a clean slate, so you don't have to do as much work to establish what the world is. But then on the other hand, there's a lot of consumers that may have already established some kind of preconceived notion of what it must or must not be. And it's uh, easy to accidentally, you know, fall into the trap of not satisfying those expectations. Yeah, I mean, especially you mentioned before that, uh, you know, it's this dream of a lot of users to uh, get into this world and, and you know, be one of their favorite characters. And if then you don't live up to their expectations, you know, it's probably even worse, uh, you know, than if you didn't try at all. I recently had, um, you know, my experience in that regard with... Um, the uh, Darth Vader, uh, you know, VR uh, series uh, that is on the Oculus Quest, and I mean, I, I liked it, and uh, but it, this is exactly the expectation that I had. I wanted to get in there, and I wanted to kind of swing my lightsaber and everything, and, and needed to feel good. I think the game delivered, but uh, I think this is a you know pretty big challenge for developers to uh, you know make that experience come to life, so that people say like, "Wow, this is exactly what I expected uh, uh, to be in." Yeah, right. <clears throat> totally, totally agree. Um, you know, this is why I mean, we're continuing to focus on IP licenses. And I think we're getting better and better. We're getting uh, better relationships, uh, which allows us to um, have access to better IP, but also just developing our internal processes better to, um, you know, have have better approaches to adopting IP, doing some market research to um, better understand our fans uh, the, or the fans of the IP to understand what it is that they want to see and what it is that they expect. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm on the tech side, but for me, it's just entertaining to get to, you know, watch those, uh, those marketing panels that we've done. Absolutely. So, um, you mentioned fatigue a little earlier, like, uh, people of course don't want to, you know, have like super long sessions all the time because it can be pretty exhausting, you know, to, uh, play uh, VR games, especially if they are super uh, action heavy. So what are your learnings in, in, in that regard? So do you have like, you know, ideal session lengths for, uh, for your games? Is that something you, you make sure that you don't, uh, you know, have people, um, be engaged with this for too long. You mentioned mini games that sometimes maybe even popular because you know they are little you know snack sized uh, VR experiences what are your thoughts yeah so definitely the session time uh, the set the session time the average session time for VR games is smaller than traditional games I think that's starting to shrink oh I mean, sorry I think that's starting to grow a little bit with um, you know more complex experiences and with better hardware that's more comfortable um, you know, I think one of the best examples is Half-Life Alex. Um, I think the average level length there is probably like 30, 40 minutes. And I've probably, you know, was able to stick around for the majority of that. Um, but it's, it's, I still had to kind of put it down after, after, after each level, um, I had to take a break. Whereas I'm sure with a flat screen game, you could easily continue playing through multiple kind of campaign missions with no problem. Um. So, and the more, the more physically exerting a game is, the more, uh, the faster your players are going to need to drop out. Um, so if we look at a game like Pistol Whip, which is, you know, 
almost like an exercise game. Um, I mean, Pistol Whip's crazy. I played it on the weekend for like a while, and it's like, oh my goodness, especially in the hotter modes, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty exhausting. Yeah, exactly. So you know, your your levels are going to have to be much shorter to allow players to drop out uh, faster. Um, so yeah, I think uh, part of that comes down to what your like peak intensity is and how often you spread it out and have moments of uh, lower intensity gameplay and exploration. Um, and um, yeah, that's you know something we've been uh, kind of experimenting with uh, in in our in our titles and different titles have different levels of intensity. And um, it's also important to recognize that different users have kind of different levels of intensity. Um, you know, uh, creating preferences in games is um, often very um, kind of, you know, different settings, different user place, adjusting other games, different user play styles. That's often pretty time consuming. And um, it, it often, uh, falls to the wayside because you're, you know, you're creating content that's only going to be experienced by a fraction of your players. Um, you know, in the best, best world, you could just create, you know, one, you don't, you don't even create settings, right? You just create one type of experience that everyone experiences uh, the same, but uh, especially in VR, we have, you know, different comfort modes. We have different locomotion styles. Um, you know, it's much more complicated than in traditional gaming where I think you know, probably one of the most core settings is probably just uh, in whether you want to invert your like uh, vertical like look uh, stick controls, um, and uh, in VR those settings really differ. Um, particularly, I think what kind of like locomotion style you use. Um, and in our game, for example, West uh, Walking Dead, we had three different locomotion styles. We had uh, joystick, we had uh, like basically arm swinging uh, as we call fluid locomotion, and we had teleport, and Obviously, swinging your arms to move around is going to uh, you exert much more uh, energy. And, you know, some people may choose to duck physically, while others may, you know, press a button or they might just not duck at all. So <clears throat> it's um, you kind of have to account for the fact that even even with the same experience, different people are going to exert themselves differently uh, and provide, um, I guess, preferences for how much people like to move. Um, right. I mean, speaking of locomotion, um, something I wanted to, um, you know, talk about anyways, and since you mentioned it now twice, <laughs> it's probably a good point to, uh, to talk about it. Um, and one of the things that, that I've noticed, like from the very first time, you know, VR experiences became a thing uh, for like a mass market, um, locomotion and the question around and, and motion sickness that comes with it um, is, is probably a key topic for many people and has kept few from you know really enjoying uh, VR experiences so what are the learnings that that you made in that regard and um, is it actually possible that we uh, get rid of that motion sickness issue completely at some point uh, I mean scientifically probably not I, I don't know but I was wondering what your thoughts were on you know how far we can take this to make it more comfortable for you know the everyday player um, even the ones that are a little bit more sensitive to um, the, the problem right so uh Artificial locomotion um, often usually causes nausea, and nausea is definitely one of the big or biggest uh, kind of sticking points for VR. Um, it's one of the reasons why players can't stay in, in VR for as long. It's also one of the reasons why that's you know kind of impeding VR becoming as mainstream. You know, no one wants to no one wants to enjoy content that makes them barf. You know, that's uh, 
that it would have to be. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be some really amazing content. Uh, I mean, I think roller coasters is maybe that type of experience where some people still go despite getting nauseous. Um, I mean, I did epic roller coasters uh, the other week, and uh, honestly, I could do like two or three of them, and then I was like, I, I gotta sit down. <laughs> this is too much, and I've played many other games on on my headset, but this one was uh, just taking too far for me. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, because these two issues are very tied together, um, and um, I, you know, VR from the beginning had a lot of this uh, anxiety and also attempts to like standardize and set rules in place um, and being there at the early days was very confusing because it felt like you were being like almost screamed at by different people from different directions all telling you like sometimes different things um, you know on one hand you had some uh, some you know that you had definitely the 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 uh, VR platform holders trying to set rules about what you can and can't do in VR trying to be very uh, strict about um, kind of the, um, let's say, kind of the minimum or, or setting, set, setting boundaries about what you can and can't do to try to, to minimize to the max, you know, minimize as much as possible and uh, users being sick, essentially trying to, uh, um, you know, there's kind of like the weighing the pros and cons of potentially you can have more advanced content versus you, you're more cautious and you have content that's really, really comfortable at the expense of, you know, potentially not being able to do as many things. And I feel like in the beginning, um, uh, there was a lot of uh, concerns about this new, uh, this, this new hardware. There was a lot of investment in it and trying to uh, push to the side of being as cautious as possible and making sure that content is, is is comfortable as possible at the expense of potentially not being able to do as many things. Um, and then on the flip side, I think uh, you had a lot uh, some consumers being very uh, uh, loud online about kind of wanting wanting more. For example, joystick movement. Uh, you know, a lot. You know, some people love teleport locomotion, but a lot of people, or at least maybe the loud minority, that were comfortable with uh, kind of traditional movement. Uh, were really not happy with teleport locomotion, and I think you know teleport locomotion got more comfortable, more more advanced um, as we learned uh, different tricks around it. So I think the 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 most uh, kind of standard one now is this kind of quick transition uh, teleport teleport. So this is what we did in um, raw data. It was called um, we called it teleshift because it's kind of like teleporting, but it shifts you. And that had the advantage of not uh, completely uh, making you lose sense of um, space. Uh, so instead of you just immediately popping to a new location, you had that quick translation, which we discovered if something is under like 0.2 uh, seconds, it doesn't trigger nausea, but it may, it, it, you don't lose the sense of um, uh, space of where things are. So if someone's shooting at you and you just quickly teleport to like their right, you can maintain that um, you can maintain that kind of eye contact. You can keep, you can adjust your aim as you as you're shifting. Um, so, you know, I think there was a lot of improvements with how we treated uh, teleport, um, but it, you know, it still is not the same as just complete one to one control with joystick movement. So there was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between what consumers wanted and what the platforms users platform holders uh, uh, were kind of pushing on um, and 
there's like a lack of standardization even across the platforms. So for example, when the HTC Vive shipped, uh, well, the HTC Vive controller is still, uh, to this day, they don't have joysticks. They have touchpads. And that was almost essentially kind of coming from the, the, the hardware itself, essentially the idea that people are not going to be using kind of traditional joystick movement. Um, on the other hand, when Oculus Touch shipped, they had, they had joysticks. So naturally, you're going to use joysticks like you use joysticks on a console game. Um, and, you know, PlayStation Move, uh, the PlayStation, PlayStation VR platform, um, they had this kind of fractured problem of they either, you either had joysticks on a gamepad or you had the PlayStation Move controllers but didn't have joystick. But it was interesting to see after, because the PlayStation VR shipped maybe a year or something after Oculus Touch uh, shipped, or in definitely more than a year, I think, then after the HTC Vive shipped, uh, if I'm getting my times correctly, maybe not. But um, it was interesting to see a lot of the content that Sony was showing at E3. Uh, a lot of it was using gamepad and using joystick. So it was kind of weird. Uh, it was it was like I was in some kind of weird, like upside down world where after hearing uh, how bad how joystick movement is really bad and and you know that really affecting like the beginning of raw data uh, because essentially raw data when we were start when we were initially working on it as our um, as our internal kind of IP for like the hardware that we were developing before we you know kind of ported it and created raw data. Uh, it was kind of a traditional campaign uh, game where you walked around kind of with traditional joystick movement. You, you, you traveled through a facility just as you normally would um, kind of in a, in a first-person shooter console game. And then when HTC Vive was shipping and uh, we wanted to get something uh, quick and kind of, uh, um, uh, I guess, in some ways safe to the market, we decided to uh, take one single section of one of those levels and we made that into a demo for vrla uh and that was a much more stationary experience where you're just standing on an elevator the elevator descends and then you just defend that section um and so we kind of uh moved away from locomotion because of all these concerns and because of the type of content that we we're seeing in htc vive and then uh we gradually added like teleport back uh because uh we're seeing that um that was what was being pushed um, uh, throughout the industry. And we, you know, we added that little bit of innovation of that. A few other studios also started catching up on essentially the shifting teleport instead of just a, a, a quick pop. Um, and um, yeah, as I said, it was kind of, it was kind of strange to then see this completely different approach when PlayStation VR was shipping and there was much more content that was on the gamepad that was revolving around you kind of walking around the traditional joystick movement. Um, and then of course the PlayStation move controllers kind of flipped that upside down because they didn't have joysticks, but then we had to figure out how to use those controllers still for this kind of direct one-to-one -one style movement. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there was definitely a lot of, um, uh, innovation or I guess experimentation in the space, lack of standardization. Um, you know, our second game was completely focused on, on, um, uh, movement. We wanted to. Uh, kind of take this, you know, in, in raw data, we ended up adding traditional joystick movement, but we wanted to explore a game that was all about movement. And we had this um, obstacle course kind of prototype that's sort of like American Ninja Warrior that had you uh, climbing with your hands. 
but you were still using joystick movement. And um, we that uh, there was like a big, it felt like there was a big disconnect between how you moved when you were climbing, where which felt very, very uh, VR-like, where you were using your motion controllers uh, versus when you, between the obstacles where you just press forward in the joystick and you just stand there and you like, you try to maybe time yourself so you don't get hit by some obstacle, but it still felt like a very non-VR kind of gameplay. And uh, this is why we started experimenting with uh, using your hands still to move on the floor, taking that kind of concept of um, using your hands to translate yourself, which again, a lot of studios start to discover that uh, it's a very comfortable, it's a much more comfortable way of moving than using your, using just a button. Um, I think it just comes down to something in your kind of brain being tricked that you're moving the world rather than you're moving yourself. And, uh, you know, we focused on making this a much more smoother experience. Uh, so just, just as, uh, you know, when you're climbing, there's some momentum if you just throw yourself. So the same thing on the floor where as you swung your hands, you kind of created this impulses. Um, so it was, um, you had to actually press a button to essentially sort of like make contact with the ground and it felt like you were kind of skiing uh, or skating, I guess. Um, and we called it fluid locomotion because the whole idea was trying to make this fluid movement going from running to climbing to flying. Um, there was a lot of effort involved with, uh, just tuning, um, tuning all the acceleration curves between changing all these different states. Um, like I think one good example is, uh, we added a few rotational techniques, um, so, you know, translation is challenging enough, but rotating the player viewpoint is the most nauseating uh, thing you can possibly do uh, that results in, uh, I, I think, the most amount of uh, movement on the, sc on the screen. Um, uh, because, like, essentially, if you're rotating right, uh, things in front of you are all starting to rotate left. And um, this is why we, you know, most games tend to have this kind of snap turn mechanic where if you press right or left, instead of smoothly turning left or right, it just pops your viewpoint 45 degrees or 35 degrees to left or right. Um, again, you can make this a slightly better experience by quickly interpolating the rotation so that you don't lose um, your sense of space. Uh, and when you do that quickly, most people don't feel nausea. Again, I think the magic number is something somewhere under 0.2 seconds. Um, and you can also further make that experience a little bit more comfortable by putting some effects up on screen and maybe shrinking the field of view a little bit. Um, but we had a lot of uh, turning mechanics in Sprint Vector uh, around running and flying. So um, partially because we were uh, PlayStation VR was basically our lead skew back then. And PlayStation VR is a front facing system. And we wanted to create a uh, you know, racing tracks that weren't just running forward. Um, and in PlayStation VR, because there's, you're tracked by a camera in front of you, if you turn fully three, uh, 180 degrees, you know, behind you, you're going to lose tracking of your controllers. And we didn't, we didn't, we wanted to avoid uh, creating, uh, just having players constantly snap turn left and right while like running, that would, um, that would result in a, not a very smooth kind of racing experience. So for uh, steering yourself a little bit on the floor, uh, we created this uh, drifting mechanic where you sort of grabbed to the right or the left of your body uh, with the correct button combination. And then the faster you run, the faster you'll turn. But on top of that, the closer you bring your hand towards you and, and away from you, 
also will will affect the turning uh, radius. So it's sort of like imagine running really fast and grabbing onto a pole, and that will naturally make you rotate around the pole. And by tying kind of the motion of your hand to it, uh, we still were using this whole concept of using kind of your, your hands to control the to control the movement. And on top of that, the the fact that the speed of your movement was also sort of tied to how fast you're turning. Um, I think that 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 tuning we somehow managed to kind of land on some kind of uh, I don't know some kind of uh, good balance. But also, you know, running, if you, if you ran over um, up a ramp and got popped off a ramp, you would no longer be on the ground. So we don't let you drift like that uh, off the ground. So there was, uh, we had to tune the deceleration of that. Uh, so it didn't immediately stop turning the moment you would pop off. Um, and that's just an example of uh, just... Uh, a lot of different uh, parameters that we're feeding into the system and, and making sure that things were smooth. Um, yeah, because similar. Do, do you collect data in that regard as well? I mean, or do you do like uh, you know, user tests uh, to figure out what works best? I mean, I can imagine for, especially for the different uh, locomotion techniques and that you have in your games that, you know, a majority of users is probably using, I don't know, teleport right now or teleshift as you call it. But I don't know, I'm just guessing right now. Is that is that data you look at and optimize the games accordingly? Uh, so, uh, both, you know, before we even get the game to the consumers, we test uh, extensively at the office um, or I guess back when we were working uh, on site, we would test at the office. Uh, it's definitely easier back then. And uh, we, uh, it, we, we had a few key individuals at the office that were known to be the most susceptible to nausea. And so they had to suffer the most for us uh essentially we would, of course poor poor guys <laughs> yeah essentially we would uh you know we, anytime we would be creating a new mechanic uh we would put them through it and we would uh kind of tune tune the experience and we would create kind of hotkeys to be able to quickly jump between different con uh, configurations or, or to to you know essentially like jump values different values by increments and just test things out on them, uh, kind of empirically, I suppose, if that's the right word, by you know testing, shifting things, and asking them to run through like a test map, and then asking did that feel better, did that feel worse. Um, so that's how we did it on site. Um, and then uh, you know, in terms of collecting analytics, um, you know, we, we've we've done a much better job of, of collecting analytics in the beginning. I think we had much more appetite back then um things were i think less certain um so in you know in the, in, in the days of raw data we had a lot of analytics in regards to what kind of control schemes people preferred um you know what what content they tried um uh how far they got through the game and, you know, we... But is there a clear favorite? I mean, is there are there are more people using uh, you know teleport um, versus uh, joystick control, or uh, is it you know does it vary from game to game? Uh, I, th I honestly, I would have to look at the data again. I think what we've discovered is um, it seems like the core audience is gravitating more and more towards joystick movement, and also we are figuring out how to make joystick movement more and more comfortable um, that I think overall the 
the industries is maturing towards uh, kind of this one consistent movement scheme. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I, I don't have the, 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 the data yeah, in front no of me. No worries. I just thought I, I asked the expert in that regard. But uh, I wanted to, to touch a topic that's kind of connected to that. So what role does the, the hardware evolution play in all that? I mean, uh, you know, if we look at modern VR headsets, of course, they are a little more sophisticated than in the early days. Uh, we have the Oculus Quest that kind of changed the entire game a little bit because, you know, you didn't ha have any cables anymore. You could move around freely. Um, now with the Oculus Quest 2, that's even brought to a different level. So um, how does, you know, the hardware evolution help in, uh, in making these problems easier to tackle? Right, so I think a a, a good uh, recent or I guess upcoming um, development that will help Nausea is this haptics that PlayStation VR two is introducing to the head mounted display, and uh, according to them, they've done uh, studies to show that uh, haptic impulses to the head uh, that are in synchronization to the movement decrease nausea. Uh, now, we haven't had the chance to ourselves try that specific experiment out, but I remember just in uh, Sprint Vector, as an example, we actually used haptics on the hands um, to uh, give feedback for when you're kind of moving yourself through the world. Uh, so when you press uh, the trigger, which activates your kind of like uh, contact with the ground to track yourself, um, and we would uh, the haptics would actually be... Um, synchronized to how fast you're moving your hand. So sort of like the faster you move your hand, the faster they clicked, almost like the experience of, you know, if you're holding something to the ground, the faster you, you know, brushing something against the ground, the faster you brush your hand, the faster you'll feel those kind of uh, friction forces. So um, haptics is one thing that can decrease nausea. And, and you know, there's, there's, uh, I think, what we know, what we've discovered is uh, like all these tricks kind of come as a cocktail to come up with one holistic solution. It's not, it's not like a one magic bullet that fix it all. So there's definitely some things in the software and then on the hardware, increasing, continuously increasing our refresh rates, the frame rates will uh, increase, will increase the, the comfort levels of the experience. Does resolution play a role? I think the resolution probably does play a role because the lower your screen the more um the more aliasing there's going to be you know even with uh, msaa uh, if you have a lower lower resolution screen you're going to see a lot more kind of like pixel flicker uh when you move your head around particularly when you rotate your head um so having a much smoother screen smooth smoother, smoother image is uh definitely going to you know help with the comfort levels and uh you know we're not just increasing the resolution of the screen. We're also adding eye tracking in the the the, the latest the latest generation update. Head mounted displays are going to start getting eye tracking, which will hopefully become kind of standard feature in head mounted displays, which will actually let us drive the resolution of the screens even further uh, using a technique called foveated rendering, uh, which essentially uses the the the, the data of where you're looking to up-res that specific uh, region of the screen and render the outer regions uh, at a lower resolution, which gives us more performance, which not only lets us, you know, uh, render more complex scenes, but also potentially render them at faster at higher uh, higher refresh rates. 
Right. I mean, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And if you compare the, um, you know, the headsets like the PSVR 2 that's coming up uh, or the currently available um, uh, ones like, uh, you know, where do you see big differences? And I'm personally curious, like, how does an Oculus Quest 2, for example, compare with, like, the, the more expensive uh, headsets in terms of, like, features and game experiences that are that are made possible? Um, is is that, you know, do you need the, the more um, fancy and, you know, higher quality, higher resolution uh, sets connected to a computer uh, to have, like, the, the really cool VR experience from your point of view? Um, or will, you know, things that are, uh, you know, more similar to the Oculus Quest 2 or maybe then the, the Quest 3, uh, will they be more the device that people are, are you know, buying to uh, and, and then allowing us as developers to, uh, you know, appeal to the mass market? Right. So I think the Quest 2 is kind of a marvel of modern modern day technology. Um, I think the idea that we could have uh, a device of that fidelity just all running on your face, not tethered to a computer, um, that was kind of like pure fantasy a couple of years ago um you know uh we're having having the pleasure uh, i suppose of trying to work on our own hardware back in the day uh, i have an even more perspective of um like how far we've essentially gone from um you know hacking things together and trying to plug plug them into the computer um or even potentially try to stream uh video of a computer to now just have it right there on your headset and you know the specs of the quest are pretty good uh in terms of the H hmd resolution i mean it, it's i'm pretty sure it's higher than you know psvr um and uh, the tracking is also excellent um i mean again it's just i would say like we're kind of the quest 2 is sort of like a 1.5 generation hmd it's not a 2 2.0 generation hmd but I, I think people quickly forget that you know and uh, I guess it's it's still even a fact that you know the the valve you know valve index still requires kind of placing tracking stations like placing things and plugging them into your computer or the wall and the Quest Two really is is such an easy device to just bring with you anywhere and just to use at anywhere and act, still provide you know maybe not the same like sub millimeter tracking that. Um, the lighthouse system provides but definitely more than good enough for the average user uh or even you know slightly higher than average i mean uh you can still play a, a lot of the the experiences that have migrated from the pc and playstation to the quest uh with i mean basically no real difference in terms of like tracking fidelity gameplay um but i, I would certainly say that it's still a mobile platform uh it's you know, now we're finally seeing content that's exclusive to Quest 2, uh, which is um, letting, give, which is removing some of the challenges in developing for the Quest platform because the Quest 1 certainly was uh, very, very limited. Um, and the Quest 2 is still, you know, it's no, it's, it's no uh, discrete graphics that you or, you know, it's no, it's no console platform. Um, but now that we're seeing some exclusive for Quest 2, um, I think like uh, Resident Evil, for example, was that. Um, that That's allowing developers uh, make some bigger content um, for the platform. But it's still a mobile platform. And the way I like to um, compare to for the layman, I guess, is to compare the VR platform graphics to like console generations. 
And um, I think on PlayStation VR, it felt like we could get uh, PlayStation 3 kind of level graphics. But on Quest 2 right now, I mean, Resident Evil is a good example. Like that's, as far as I'm aware, PlayStation 2 era game. Um, and um, so if we want higher fidelity graphics, then we need better hardware. So I think my hope is with you know PlayStation VR 2, we'll have PlayStation 4 level graphics essentially on in VR. Um, I think I think you can see those that level of fidelity in uh, PC PC based games today. And uh, you know with PlayStation VR 2, we'll have a more mainstream platform um, that's probably hopefully more affordable and also much easier to set up uh, with a also, you know, much uh, more well-supported, uh, uh, you know, a library of games by Sony. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, Quest will not be far behind. They're talking about the Quest Pro, um, which I'm very excited about because that's, again, going to introduce, as far as I'm aware, uh, eye tracking. Um, and it's going to have better processing. So, and as far as I know, that's not a Quest 3 per se. So I'm sure Quest 3 is on the horizon. And, you know, my hope that is that we'll have some feature parity uh, along Quest 3 and PlayStation VR 2 in terms of graphics. Um, of course, graphics aren't everything. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing titles successfully uh, ported to run on both Quest and PlayStation VR and PC. So there's always some scalability there in mind um so i mean yeah you mentioned you mentioned affordability and uh you know i would say you know ease of use and uh, how easy it is for people to to get into all that uh you know plays a major role and uh you know from from my point of view i think that's where you know the quest 2 really shines and i fully agree with you that uh, you know if you compare it with the console generations then yeah it, it might be ps2 versus uh, ps4 um but it it opens the market for many people that otherwise wouldn't have considered getting like an expensive vr headset in addition to an expensive computer or you know even in addition to their uh, playstation so uh, i think that uh is what makes these uh, devices super interesting and the fact that it's not tethered to a computer but uh or to a console but uh, you know it works as a standalone device so i'm super excited <laughs> like you are about you know the next generation there and see uh you know where um where this is going to take it the, the last thing that i wanted to uh, ask you is uh you know we're, we're all gamers uh, obviously and especially in the field of vr it's great to to see what's out there so from your point of view which games right now are pushing the boundaries of what's possible in vr uh what are what are games from your point of view to check out uh that that everybody should know you know maybe a tough one and i'm not asking about your own games only but in general like the market but i'm just curious you know what you would recommend to our to our listeners uh, or maybe even to developers um in terms of you know checking out those titles if they want to get that uh, that outstanding vr experience well i mean i suppose i already mentioned resident evil uh for vr uh, so sort of like cheating i suppose but I think that's. Uh, I, I let it count. It's it's all right. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's an easy answer. Uh, it came out recently. It's uh, it uh, you know it definitely got some attention. It's got uh, IP that people kind of already know. Uh, that kind of um, uh, circles back to my previous uh, conversation about using IP licenses. So that's not just you know movie and TV show IP, but bringing some older gaming IP into VR or some existing mainstream IP. I mean that's what. Oculus here is doing with Splinter Cell and uh, Assassin's Creed. 
So I think it's a really interesting uh, example of taking an older uh, non-VR game and trying to and 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 you know and and porting it as as faithfully as possible, but also adding VR mechanics to the mix. So um, I I definitely enjoyed that. Um, I played Walkabout Mini Golf for the first time uh, in multiplayer uh, over the winter, and that felt like a pretty uh, magical kind of experience. Um, I, you know, it's very simple social game. You you could kind of hang out with someone else for a while there. I think that circles back to the discussion about, you know, making content that doesn't, doesn't, uh, overexert you and you can stay in for a while. Uh, it was very serene, uh, in there. And it, it, I think it works really well on the quest, like the, the art style that the developer picked. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I think that was one of the examples of activities that I actually preferred more in VR than in reality, if that makes sense. Like, for example, ping pong and tennis, I think I would rather play in real life. But mini golf, I discovered it was just so much more convenient and mainstream to play in VR. Um, And another last title uh, I'll mention that was, I think, interesting that I tried over the winter is I think it's called Song in the Smoke. It's a um, it's a survival uh uh, kind of kind of game uh, playing as a sort of prehistoric caveman, uh, and I found it interesting to you know I I'm not uh, I'm not a, I'm not someone who is a big um, big uh, survival games uh, player. Um, I just uh, you know like games like I mean I don't know if Minecraft falls into that vein, but uh, I suppose I just have don't have enough patience and I need uh, more direction on what to do. And I, I, I found myself surprisingly really enjoying this game because of the how many different uh, mechanics that f- fit well for VR uh, related to kind of crafting and uh, scavenging for resources. And again, I played that on the quest and I th- thought the art style uh, was well fit for that platform. Uh, actually, well, uh, last but not least, uh, I forgot to mention that fract actually i i really enjoyed that on the playstation vr um, i like skiing and uh obviously you know again I, I would prefer skiing in real life but skiing down slopes there and like shooting at things um like zip lining climbing uh that uh that tram sequence where you're you're on a train and it like gets blown up and you have to climb out of it it really reminded me of a uh, sequence out of uncharted 2 beginning i believe um, i really enjoyed that as well well, lots of good stuff to to check out for our listeners and myself. You know, some of the things I already tried, but some others I didn't. So, uh, Alex, I want to thank you very much for the time uh, today and all the insights you provided. Um, VR is a very exciting field, and uh, I know that many people in our DevCom community are also uh, not only passionate VR gamers, but uh, you know, developing games in that space themselves. Uh, so, I hope that uh, you know you found some really good value in that session, and uh, I'm pretty sure you know everybody in that space is going to push the boundaries even further going forward. Again, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for joining us today. And I can't wait to see what uh, kind of games you develop over the next couple of years. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast, presented by DevCom.Global, produced by Sven Vosing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. 
supported by Biodynamic, high-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers, made in Germany. <laughs>